Hi there. We're excited that you've joined us and that you're able to listen to this resource from Grace Presbyterian Church, Christchurch. We hope that it will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord. Please let us know how this sermon encourages you in your faith. We'd love to connect with you and worship with you on Sundays at 10am. Please find more information about us online or in the link in our bio. church um, there was a space and they, ha- they were short of a preacher today so I volunteered on the basis that I'd done a sermon on grace at Ashburton but I see um, Tim Kuypers is here you'll have to go through it again um, there's a few changes grace is really important to Christians. It's in the name of our church and it's something that we depend upon to be saved and to live. But it's not necessarily something that we resort to or think about when we approach the life problems that life brings upon us. But before we think about our finding grace, have you noticed that there's not much grace around in the world around us today? Have you imagined what it would be like if one politician showed one bit of grace? How much light that would bring to a pretty dark world. So the the subject of the sermon this morning is how do we find grace? And later on we'll we'll read through Psalm one sorry, Psalm eighty six, where the psalmist specifically asks or searches for grace and asks God for grace. But when we think of grace, I guess all of us, just like the song we sing, How Great Thou Art, another great hymn in the church is Amazing Grace by John Newton. Now John Newton, as most of you will know, was a slave trader. He became a Christian and an Anglican minister, and he wrote um, many hymns. In fact, he wrote 280 hymns. He was also a... one of the activists against the slave trade and he was an abolitionist although he worked as a slave trade on a slave trading vessel himself in his earlier years some of the songs other songs that he composed are glorious things of thee are spoken and how sweet the name of jesus sounds i'm sure for many of us here these songs are familiar to us because just like how great thou art they lift our hearts up to magnify the glory of God. And it's in our worship of God that we find grace. So when you're looking for grace, think, worship God. So let's just go through the words of Amazing Grace. And I should have asked Chris before, are we going to sing this later on? The the old version? (laughs) Right on. See, worship is a bit of a thing, a hobby horse for for an old guy like like me. But we recently were um, travelling in Australia and went to a couple of churches and you miss your own church and it's just great to be here today um, hearing these, the songs that Chris has chosen, old songs and new songs that lift our hearts up to see the beauty of God. When we see the beauty of God, we give him worship and we find grace. But the words from Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
Through many toils, dangers and snares, I have already come. Disgrace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I, sh- I, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. And the verse we all remember, when we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Grace reveals the glory of God, and through the worship of God we find grace. Many of you will know the story of Les Miserables. I don't know whether it's a show or an opera or whatever, but it's, it's, it was a good movie. There are three men who confront grace. Jean Valjean, Inspector Javert, and a priest. As the story begins, Valjean is being released from 19 years on the chain gang, paroled back into the world, but shackled with his criminal convictions. This keeps him from being able to start over and make a new life. In despair, he returns to a life of petty crime. He's caught by the police after stealing silver from a church where a priest had offered him shelter. But when the police bring him back to the church, the priest denies the charges and insists the silver was a gift and gives Valjean the most valuable silver candlesticks in the church. Valjean's enemy is Inspector Javert, if you recall Russell Crowe. He's not a good singer, but (laughs) but his song went like this. Mine is the way of the Lord, and those who follow the path of righteousness shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword. And so it has been, and so it is written on the doorway to paradise, that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. There's no mercy for Javert. There is no grace. He wants only to capture Valjean and bring him to justice, back to prison for breaking his parole. Instead, Javert finds despair, terror, and takes his life. The glory of the story is with the priest, not in the rule of law, not the legal inspector Javert, and not Jean Valjean. The priest was merciful and gave undeserved favour to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean, who represents us, is left completely under the control of either law or grace. He had no control over grace or law, but the priest paid the price and gave the most valuable silver in the church to him. Javert chose the path of of obedience to the law. He relentlessly hunts down Jean Valjean, but his righteousness brought him no peace, just despair. So what is grace? And I've referred to a lot of scripture, and I'll read, I'll read out some of that scripture, but a lot of it is around Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. And they're like some of Paul's sentences, quite long and hard to follow the context. But before we, get, we launch into, into Ephesians, let's just remember John 3.16, which we all remember. And let's remember it slowly so we don't rush over it. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's God's grace. That's his purpose. Grace is free. You don't have to work for grace. It's an unmerited favour. It can't be earned. Grace was where God reaches down to the world to give us mercy. In Ephesians 1 and 2 talks about the purpose of grace. And it uses some words that create not friction, but not division, but confusion amongst the broader church. When it starts off in Ephesians 2 verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So the whole um, calling of man to, to save man was for the purpose, to the praise of the glorious grace of God. And it's not just grace today, it's grace in the ages to come. In Ephesians 2, verse 6, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. John Newton in, in Amazing Grace says it this way, Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Grace also motivates us to join duty and pleasure when ordinarily they are intention. We would rather be driven by pleasure and not duty. But Newton elsewhere composed a hymn that said, Since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. So I, I, I cut off the beginning there and I want to read that again. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Grace is initiated by God's love. Grace comes from God because we are dead in our sins. There is, in Romans 3 it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. But you ask, what is our responsibility to find grace? Is it all up to God or is it all up to us? The paradox of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, two things which appear to be opposite with each other, for example, let's look at some verses. Human responsibility. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That was from Hebrews and from James. But we also read in Romans, it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed him in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So you have this tension throughout Scripture. What must I do to find grace? Or does God bestow his grace upon us? Is it his initiative or is it our initiative? And the church has been divided. A good example of that division is between John Wesley and George Whitfield. John Wesley and Whitfield founded the Methodist Church. John Wesley believed in the responsibility of your free will. George Whitfield believed in the sovereignty of God, that his grace, his initiative comes into our life and turns us to God to worship him. Now you can argue to the cows come home between those two divisions within the church. And one of the things about grace is in Ephesians it talks about that God will reveal his mystery to us in the, in the, in the second age in the, in the, when we get to heaven. In the meantime, it's important for us not to point fingers at other people or to say you're wrong and I'm right because that's got nothing to do with grace. And the story goes that one of Whitfield's followers asked him, Mr. Whitfield, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield replied, no, I won't. He'll be too near the throne of grace for me to see him. And that should be our attitude when we have these discussions, not just about sovereignty of God and free will, but about other issues in the church. We must always esteem the other more highly than ourselves and not judge them because they have a different point of view. But in our church, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we believe firmly and strongly in the sovereignty of God, that he reaches his hand out to us before we reach out his hand, our hand to, to him. And as you would expect, I've got another old-fashioned song to explain what I think is a good answer to the paradox. And this song was, was um, my mother's favourite song. And I remember when I was a little kid, sitting beside my mother who was tall, and she was singing this song and singing her heart out. So I've now that I've given you anticipation. What is this song? It's an old-fashioned song. It's about 200 years old. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Saviour, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For you were long beforehand with my soul, always you loved me. Now, because it's Old English, I'm going to read that again. And I'll try and make it use the modern words. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved me my soul to seek him, seeking me. It wasn't me that found, O Saviour, true. No, I was found of you. You reached forth thy hand in mine and fold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. It wasn't so much that I took hold of you, but you, dear Lord, of me. Now I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For you were long beforehand with my soul, always you loved me. And it boils down to not 
of who does what work, but who loves who. God loved us, and when he loved us, he reveals himself to us as we search for him, and we love him. And it's our love for, uh, for him that motivates our action. It's our spring. And it's his love for us that produces grace in our lives. Finding grace. When faced with trials, we need God's grace, but our initiative is to look at other answers, other solutions. Anything but God's grace. Those initiatives include self-pity, it's not fear, why me? Stoicism, where we grin and bear it and smile when inside we're hurting. We distract ourselves with entertainment, watch YouTube, or we're into self-improvement, exercise and diet. Or we doubt God's grace. All these things are our first responses to trials. Instead of looking to God and his grace, his will, not my will, we try to solve the problem ourselves and we miss grace. Finding grace is an Old Testament expression. It, in, in the Old Testament it refers to finding favour. There are three references to three people who found favour, which means they found grace in the eyes of the Lord, unmerited favour, each in different circumstances. The first man was Noah in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Only Noah and his family were saved from the flood. And so here we see grace meted, portioned out to one man and his family in the whole of society was destroyed in the flood. Lot's another, the, other, the second example, where he says, Behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Lot really, there's nothing good to be said about Lot. Um, after he escaped Sodom, he, he was um, overcome with alcohol. But he received grace. Grace is not necessarily for good people, but for bad people. The third person is Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Moses pleads with God to continue to care for the people of Israel who had rejected him and worshipped the golden calf. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses asks, please show me your glory. And the story goes that God says, no, I can't show you my glory, but he shows, points his back towards him as he goes past him. But the consequence of um, receiving or seeing or owning grace is a desire to worship God. It's an amazing question that Moses asks, let me see your glory. Is that our prayer? When we worship God, is it to see his glory? Or is it about us? And then the other example is not from the 
Old Testament, but the New Testament. The simplest example in The Thief on the Cross. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief had no grounds to claim mercy, but by God's grace, without any good works, he found grace. There's a phrase I ran into recently called the sweet spot of grace, and it comes from a lady called Nancy Guthrie, who's a teacher and an author of studies for women and books. She works with the Gospel Coalition. She lost two children in their infancy to a rare disease. She addresses all the loss in her life and the loss of the two children when she says, the hardest thing to accept is the softest place to land. She's referring to the moment of sweet submission to God's grace, to surrender to his will even when it hurts. Completely entrust yourself to him, because then we find the softest place to land, which is the arms of God's grace and his promises which do not fail. The soft landing is when we turn to God and surrender to his plan, his glory, his will, when we rest in his goodness and his promises. It's then that we find hope that makes sense of our, our trials. It's then when we find confidence to deal with the issues. It's then when we can freely cast our care upon him for he cares for us. It's the softest place to land when we realise, as Newton wrote, the Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. That's grace in the presence. And Newton goes on in another verse, grace in the future. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The book of Psalms is an interesting book to consider where the psalmists talk much about their trials, enemies and even a sense of God not listening to them. Really do you see a psalm that ends with an express answer? The answer is found in the implicit trust in God's grace, waiting upon the Lord to give his answer. For example, in Psalm 73, when the psalmist bemoans how the rich guys um, always win, he says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The grace is in the faith. Reuben referred to Psalm 86, which is a psalm where David specifically asked for grace. I was hoping that someone else would read it, so now we'll have to read it. If you could turn in your Bible, see um, Psalm 86. It's always quicker in a book, isn't it? Great is your steadfast love. Verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify you. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me, and a band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favour that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So let's just briefly break down this psalm in answer to the question, finding grace. The request is in verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Verse 17, show me a sign of your favour that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. So he asks for grace. Secondly, he speaks candidly, not fearfully, but with confidence in God. And he has a personal relationship with the Father. In verse 1 he says, For I am poor and needy. Verse 2, Preserve my life. 7, In the day of my trouble I call upon you. Thirdly, he feels alone. Is God listening? Verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Verse 4, To you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul as he had nothing else to bring before God. I call upon you in verse 7. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Have mercy. Next, the psalmist is God-centred. The foundation of his prayer is God's might, his power, his holiness, not his own problem. Verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mentioned earlier, I think, that we've just been in Australia and we went to a couple of churches, different churches, and um, this just shows I'm a grumpy old man. But you're allowed to be a grumpy old man and you shouldn't despise old people. (laughs) I'm just saying it. (laughs) 
But the songs they sang, and, and, and this is more apposite, is I'm now being ungracious, I'm being judgmental. But the songs they sang and the worship style of the service, you got, it left me with the impression that it's all about me and not really about God. And I thought, shall I say this? Because music people will think that's what I'm saying happens here. But as you've seen this morning, it's all about God. And why do I say that? Because the, the psalmist here appeals to God's glory. And when we come to church, we, we are in an environment which is good where we do worship God for his glory and his beauty. But if you're like me, when you're re reading the Bible at home or you're praying, you, I tend to be more focused upon my need and not upon God's glory. And in a few special times, you, when I've seen God's glory, I'm not saying it like Moses, but just seen a little bit of his truth and his promises, then you worship him and you participate in his grace. Because his grace counts more, not so much for today, but for the judgment day and life after death. And the other thing that precipitated this, 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 uh, this I call it a talk or a sermon on grace, is as you get older, life gets a bit more complicated. And your trials become heavier. And God puts this across our pathway. It might be health, it might be a child who, who doesn't follow the Lord and you pray for every day of their life. But you've got to trust in God's grace. And God's promises are that he's in control. He does what is best for us. His will, we need to learn to rest in his will, not my will. And it's when we get to that moment of trusting God for his will, even though it hurts, it's then that we land in that soft place of grace and have peace and he carries the load. But just in case you think all modern music is no good, that's not true. There's a song by Michael Smith that we sing here. I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it because it's all about you. It's all about you. So finally, or not finally, but nearing the end, the psalmist is thankful and also he pleads with God, he argues with God and he cries out to him. So the communication with God is raw and earthy, not academic. And it isn't to you get to that position where you cry to him, where you say, I lift up my soul to you, when you're saying, I have nothing. Help me. That, that, that sweet spot arrives and you know God's grace. And flick what happens, you worship him. And flick what happens, you say, Lord, what can I do? And you see that an example in Isaiah ch chapter 6 when Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple and God asked, I've got a job to be done. And Isaiah says, Lord, send me. Um trying to think of another example. Uh, it, will, it will come to me later on, as, as happens with old age. Oh, it's David in Psalm 51. 
the deepest prayer of confession of sin and grace. And what does David do? He asks that he will be able to teach sinners God's way. So when you run into grace and it tells you that you're no good and you're, you're the pits or whatever, it doesn't leave you there. It always gives you a calling to work in the kingdom, to, to share God's grace. It's like seeing God's beauty. When you see a beautiful sunset, you want you say, look, come out and have a look at this. It's the same with God's grace. When you see God's grace, you want to share it. You want to teach others. You want to obey Christ. Finally, the psalmist is not a victim. He doesn't plead unfairness or why does he deserve this. God is not accountable to the psalmist. The psalmist does not have any rights. He deserves judgment. And this is what grace teaches us. We need grace because we are dead in our sins, because we are against God unless he by his Holy Spirit draws us to him through grace. Sometimes people will say, I'll believe in God, but he's got to reveal himself within two weeks. And you think, oh good, my son or whatever is looking towards God. But it's just, it's the rubbish. Why do you think God should answer you within two weeks? You need to, and we need to, and I need to, always be searching for God. Search, search when it's hard. Search even harder. Find him because he promises that when you search for him, you will find him, but not in your time, in his time. And sometimes we ask, for, we ask for prayers to be answered and they don't get answered because we think in terms of our time and not God's time. And it might be for healing, but it doesn't happen because God's time is not so much now as through the veil, as Newton says, before God in, in the kingdom of heaven, before everyone, his glory will be made known through his grace. And so if you're suffering and have disappointments and they just don't seem to be answered, they will be answered in heaven. And if you go and look, I don't have the note in my notes here, if you go and look at Job, he says things like, I know what the answer will be. He says, I will come forth as gold. And that's the, f the faith, the grace is found in our faith. And so we find grace even though it's, there, there seems to be no answer to our problems. But we glory in God because of his word, his promises, his grace and the future that he holds for us. Just one final thing I, 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 I mentioned. If there's not much grace in the world today. And if there was just a little bit of grace, what a big difference that would make. And it's incumbent upon us, therefore, to show grace to other people. Jesus talks about forgiveness, and if you don't forgive him, he will not forgive you. Matthew 6, a solemn warning. And it's the, 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 uh, the man who um, was forgiven much and then went out and racked up a, a debtor of his, and that made God real angry. We need to learn to be gracious ourselves. 
because grace shows the beauty of God. Grace, more than anything, draws people to God, not to you, but to him. But also the opposite is true. When Christians especially are ungracious and people know they're Christians, it's one of the most ugliest things you can see. So on that ugly note, I shouldn't finish. On a positive note, I'll leave the words to John Newton as we sing Amazing Grace. So, Chris, it's...